0: All right, great. Thanks, Peter. And good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for coming today. If you're uh, brand new and visiting, welcome to you especially. Thanks for joining one of our, our worship services uh, today. hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Uh, happy uh, first Sunday of Advent as well. We're not doing an Advent series this year at uh, Hiawatha, but we uh, will continue with our Second Corinthians series here today. But today is the, the day of hope. And like that song said uh, in Advent, we, we remember that Jesus came to us, right? O come, O come, O come. Emmanuel, which is the name of Christ, a theological name for Christ, uh, may he come to us, right? Uh, versus the, the alternate idea, the religious idea, the non-Christian notion that we uh, come to God or we, we ascend to him. So uh, that's, that is a Christmas idea. It is an Easter idea. It's an every day of the year idea for, uh, for us who, who believe. And for all of you who don't yet, it is good news for you too. Uh, God loves you. He died for you. He came to rescue you as well. So... Um, as we continue to gather then kind of under that, that idea uh, as, as a church through the lens of the book of 2 Corinthians, we're going to open that again today if you're new to Hiawatha. We've been in this series now for a few months and it'll continue through early March. It's kind of our plan right now. Uh, but this is one of the, the 27 books of the New Testament, one of the 13 that the Apostle Paul wrote to, um, the, to the churches. And this is the second one to Corinth. So he planted this church, he started, he established leadership there, he left to go elsewhere to plant other churches, but he's hearing about dysfunction in this church, he's hearing about issues that are arising doctrinally and otherwise. Uh, we say here a lot that go- gospel creates, gospel theology creates gospel culture, so when you mess with theology, uh, you mess with the culture, it kind of creates dysfunction uh, in, in churches. And so, and every, and every church has that because we're imperfect but this church really did. And so Paul writes back and seeks to correct and show his love for them and many other, other things as well. So we're going to continue to hear about that uh, in, in this series today and in, in the coming weeks. But let me, um, let me read in full to begin. We're in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 to 13. If you have a Bible or a phone app want to turn there, that would be great. Uh, but we'll um, read this in full to begin. Looking at this theme today of wide open hearts, uh, the affection that Paul has for this church, even his enemies in the church, and what we learn uh, about the gospel through that, and many other themes here today as well. We'll look at three prominent ones, and I'll mention that after we read. So, let's begin. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul speaking. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, "...by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and and the left, through honor and dishonor, slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed." As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. All right, so let's dive in today. Uh, Just a wonderful little passage here. 2 Corinthians can be a little hard to access. Uh, some of you may know this about the book, and may, maybe you don't share the sentiment, and that's, that's great. Uh, but I know for me, if I had all the books of the New Testament out on a table, kind of spread out on sheets of paper, uh, I probably wouldn't uh, gravitate to this book in terms of uh, the most accessible uh, and understandable of books. Uh, there are other ones that, that are a bit more. And I think that's the reason, beca- the reason is because this book is so testimonial for Paul. And so it can be hard for us to just fully feel what he's feeling. And that's actually okay. I'll talk about why that's the case a little bit later and and how to see Christ in that. Um, But this is one of those passages that you're like, man, this is heavy. And Paul's experiencing a lot. Um, I maybe don't as much. uh, have those things going on in my life, but that's okay. Um, The the point is Christ, and we'll we'll get there. But I want to start with this first theme, uh, which is, Going back to verse 1 and talking about the urgency uh, in this idea of now is the day of salvation, the encouragement and the urgency. Verse 1 starts by saying, We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God, the undeserved favor of God towards sinners like us. Don't receive that gospel, that good news, in vain, but like with no intent then to kind of continue on in it or to allow it to wreck us and to rebuild us in love. Don't do that, but receive it in full with open hearts. So remember, Paul is responding in this book to his critics in Corinth. If you are just joining us, you have to understand that to get the book. It's really hard to understand otherwise. He has critics in the church and uh, even false teachers who are teaching against uh, grace as well. And, And in that light, Paul is calling out to them, even the critics then who are having a hard time understanding how a true sent apostle or pastor, you know, given this role by God, can suffer so much. Uh, He's calling out to all of them, even them, to not receive the grace of God uh, in, in vain. And really this whole idea has to do with perseverance. So he's saying, don't begin with grace, but then resort or kind of fall back to what the Bible calls the flesh, or this idea of moral effort in order to maintain that grace. So don't start with the idea that there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor, but then sort of resort or fall back into this, non-Christian notion of needing to be good in order to keep God's favor over us. That that is a a massive theme in a lot of Paul's letters. In fact, just to show you one example of this, in a different book of the New Testament, Paul's addressing a very similar thing happening in the churches in Galatia. And he says in 5 7, You are running so well, Galatians. What happened? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So the truth here being the truth about Christ, the truth of Christ, the truth that grace is the only way that we can be saved. Sinners like us can access uh, a holy God, and and better yet, him access us. So it's clearly possible with these two ideas, and there's many more, but for Christians then who have believed the message of the gospel to be hindered or tripped up in our race so that we stop believing it uh, as as much. Almost like we were running a, a long race and doing well and running freely, and then halfway through, we stop and inexplicably go off to the side of the road and put these heavy chains around our neck and then start running again. Uh, that would be a, a bad thing to do, right, for all of you who run races. Like, that, that would be a, an inexplicable, unwise thing to do. And Paul's kind of saying to some of these Christians in churches, that's kind of what you're doing. He just basically says, why? Why would you do that? You were running so well. Why did you stop? And why would you pull over and just... You know, yoke yourselves essentially with this idea that you have to be a good person in order to maintain God's favor over you as a Christian. Uh, Whether it's Corinth, whether it's the churches in Galatia, whether it's Hiawatha Church in Minneapolis in the year 2020, um, these are the things that can trip us up and can uh, prevent us from finishing the, the race of faith. So what he does then is he quotes from the Old Testament, Isaiah 49 where God says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. Wonderful news there, right? That God wants to listen to us or does listen to us. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And he's basically just using that prophecy, this Old Testament prophecy, which it was forward-looking, to say that that time is now. So now is the time when God has listened to our cries for help and responded and he does so through Jesus' death and resurrection. He has, to use more words here, helped us in our sins. He's helped us up from the, the miry clay in the pit that the Psalms talk about so much. Helped us up from Hades, from hell. Helped us up from exile. And it's this favorable time now when Jesus makes sinners favorable to God um, through his death and resurrection. So Paul's basically saying, don't miss that train. He's saying, We live in an amazing time right now. For the past 2,000 years, the earth has been experiencing what the Bible calls the day of the Lord, meaning the sun is up and he has shown against the darkness, especially in here in our hearts. He has raised the dead and he's done so all through his son's work on the cross and through his triumphant resurrection. And the Bible again is saying the time is now. Receive it, but don't receive it in vain with the intent to ignore it. And so in this passage then, the way he's using the Old Testament, the way he's speaking to the church, there is, as is the case a lot of times in the Bible, with exhortation like this, there is a grace to it and an urgency to it. I I heard another pastor in the Twin Cities once say, a number of years ago, when I was a younger Christian, this really shaped me, uh, and I'll pass it on to you, but he said once to those who say, I'll just become a Christian later in life, after I finish school or have some fun or maybe start a family. I'll just decide to kind of uh, settle down spiritually uh, maybe 10 years from now or something. Or, or maybe we might say to Christians or non-Christians today, after COVID's over, after this pandemic ends, then I'll get back to taking the gospel seriously or maybe to actually hearing it for the first time uh, and to obeying the truth. Uh, as, he, as he says here. To those people, this pastor said, who told you that it's you who ultimately gets to decide when you become a Christian? As if it's just like deciding to buy a car or deciding to eat at McDonald's versus Chipotle or something, or as if we're the ones who get to choose when the sun comes up. In other words, how do you know that your heart will be soft to God in the future? How do you know that he will be speaking to you in the same way that he is maybe now? Uh, in other words, uh, and he used this phrase as well, it's playing with fire to put off taking the day of the Lord seriously, or the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's playing with fire to put it off. I mean, one, because we don't know if we'll be alive uh, tomorrow, much less 10 years from now, or, or in eight months when the pandemic's waning or something like that. And it puts too much trust, though, death aside, too much trust in our sinful, wayward hearts and uh, in our, in our future versions of those hearts, which are still sinf- sinful and wayward, and too little trust into God's present revelation of Jesus in our life uh, to act and to think and to um, sort of posit that way. In other words, uh, and I'll say it this way too, uh, to use words from 2 Corinthians 4, we ultimately become Christians when God says, let there be light in our dark hearts. I'm quoting from chapter 4, verse 6. We ultimately become Christians when God says, let there be light in that person's heart I love, that sinner's heart who's wayward from me. Let there be light where there presently isn't any. Let there be light where there's darkness. Let there be light where there's sin. Let there be light where there's obstinance. Let there be light where there's an inability to understand the gospel. And this is not to say we don't have real choices or that we're not responsible. Not responsible then to respond to God. We obviously are, but it's saying that God causes us to be reborn, right? No one can be reborn on their own, as Jesus has that infamous um, exchange with Nicodemus in John 3 about. It's the whole point, right? Is we can't choose to be born, and so we need someone to cause that to happen. If God's doing that now, again, just to go back to Second Corinthians 6, if God's at work now, then today's the day. Uh, embrace the gospel now. Take it seriously. Repent, turn, believe in Jesus for, uh, for our deliverance. All right? The, the second theme then, which serves as uh, kind of the meat uh, of this section, also kind of this letter, is the idea of commending our lives to you. Paul's saying, I commend my lives to you, Corinthians. And so it's the center uh, and I, I mentioned this before by way of recap, but again, Paul is, yet again, this might sound like old hat if you've been here for the series because he's playing this message on repeat a bit. He's defending his apostolic, his pastoral ministry, and essentially showing how not shy he is about his sufferings. Right? It's a laundry list of sufferings. It's a big deal for Paul to be doing this in this letter. He's, he's testimonially describing his life as a man of suffering, he is uh, also saying, this is what true apostles of God look like. Remember, there are people in that church that aren't teaching this. They're living opposite to this. And Paul is saying, it's actually a mark of authenticity that I'm weak, that I have blind spots, that I, that I suffer. It proves that God's with him. It proves and authenticates his preaching and his, his greater mis- uh, ministry. The big reason, again, being to go back a few weeks, we looked at this a few weeks ago, is that the heart of the gospel has to do with Christ's sufferings and the principle of being saved by grace, not by works. And so weakness is a positive thing in as much as it underscores the need for God to work, to save the weak, and to be strong for us, rather than patting us on the back for our works. In verse 3, it kind of starts here by saying, we put no obstacle in anyone's path, implying that, if he was a Superman apostle, uh, that might trip up these Christians. It might prevent them from running their race well. It might serve as an obstacle rather than being a help. Meaning, and to use some language from verses 1 and 2, um, between a strong person and a weak person, which one would need more help? Obviously the weak person, right? So when God is saying, in a favorable, favorable time I'm speaking now, in a, day of, in a day of salvation, I've come to you and heard your... Eyes for deliverance, he's speaking to the weak, to those who can't save themselves, namely all of us. But Paul's saying if I was strong, if I physically looked like the opposite of that of that message, it could it could serve as a giant root in, in the path of of the cross-country race of faith that you're running, and it could trip you up. Because what if he was an apostle who never suffered, right? And who was super strong? It could send the opposite message of of grace. It would suggest that we don't need help from God, but rather that he rewards the strong for ascending the mountain uh, on their own volition and by their own works and, and wit. So we'll come back to these few verses in a second, but uh, the, the big idea here for this first part is to understand that weakness in Paul's life, and certainly by, in our life too, uh, as an extension, Christian leadership, but all of us, but especially in Paul, weakness exemplifies the, the need for and the reality of the the grace of God. And and, and here's what I want you to see, this big thing here that Paul's been saying over and over again and showing with his life, is that in Christianity, in in Christian theology, we talk about how we move from weakness to Christ more than moving from weakness to strength. And and so we don't have this idea that uh, Christians are underneath the teaching of Jesus and he's just meant to kind of have this, um, you know, think tank-like discipleship program where he's just around a circle table with us, teaching us to kind of have a better version of ourselves. That's not how we think, right? Instead, it's moving from a place of weakness to being in Christ, to being in what he does for us, to being uh, one with him spiritually, as the Bible teaches in in this mystical sense. And then secondly, how important that it is for Paul to show off that every day and at least seasonally and regularly when he suffers that's why he lists these things out he's saying I commend these things to you so you'd see Jesus in them I commend my life and these aspects of my life right here to show that I'm a true apostle if I didn't have them I probably wouldn't be legit Because by my strength and my perfect life, I would suggest that you too need to have that in order to maintain or or have for the first time favor with God. But it's not by works. It's not by strength. It's not by wearing a cape. It's not by not having weaknesses. It's by being weak sinners who reach out for help that we're saved, right? And so Paul keeps coming back to this, saying it's not just circumstantial. It's not just that some... People don't like the Christian message and they're rioting around me and stoning me almost to death. It's not just that, but it's the fact that God has this path for me to walk so that you'd see glimpses of Christ's path, that you'd see a principle of a man just like you who has done nothing to deserve this salvation except to cry out for help and and to receive it. And, And I too am a man that God looked at and said, let there be light. And, and there was. If you know Paul's story in Acts 9, you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, Paul didn't actually, he didn't really have that moment of even, you know, praying the sinner's prayer, like we say sometimes, right? Or reaching out in that capacity. Uh, Jesus just appeared because he loved him and, and he chose him uh, just, just like for us. Okay, so that's the first angle to this. The, the weakness exemplifies grace. The second angle is weakness exemplifies Christ, So I was already talking about this, but it is distinct enough in this passage that we have to look at it from a different angle because Christ was the one who became weak for us, right? So when Paul says we commend ourselves in every way, the we there is him and Timothy and Titus. He's not saying this is normative in the same way for all Christians. He's just saying this is true for me as your pastor. And he's not bragging. You might look at that and say, you know, if one of you were, was to say to someone else, I commend myself to you, he might say, well, what, what's your life so great that I should like look at it, right? It would sound kind of arrogant, but it's, that's not what he means. He's saying, I commend these aspects of my life to you because God's at work in a certain way. I'm trying to commend God himself to you. I'm trying to commend my suffering and the suffering of Christ to you uh, in, in a special way. So there are three angles here that I want to look at just really quickly. One is... When he lists out his story, you see characteristics as he defends his apostleship, characteristics that aren't just characteristics, they're characteristics that demonstrate Christ's characteristics. So things like in these two verses, if you look at that quickly, things like being a truth speaker, having genuine love or kindness or purity, things that straight up resemble Jesus. Uh, he is the truth, we, we said before, right? He is has loved us in a greater way to the uttermost, to hell and back. He, he is pure. He is the spotless lamb who was slain for our sins. And we could go on and on and on. Um, but just as an aside, this is not something that um, I think in the Western church we're always super comfortable or seasoned in doing, and, and that is to mystically understand the notion that we are one with Jesus. And I know if you're a Christian, you, you You've come to understand this on some level, but I mean to really apply that though, you know, to believe that when we have knowledge or when we have patience or when we have showings of the Spirit in a gifted kind of way or when we love, when we speak the truth, that's actually not us, but Christ in us in that moment. That's how much we are one with Him according to the Bible's teaching. And so, that when we believe that, it shapes the way we look at each other, right? If, if you believe that about another Christian, then it would shape how you'd understand an act of kindness shown to you. It, it, it wouldn't just be, Luke is being kind to me because he's a good guy, but it would be, Luke is being kind to me because he's a gift from God to me in this moment, so I would think about God's kindness to me through his son. That's how much Jesus is one with Luke, and one with me, and one with all of you who believe so that love and kindness in the church would be records we would keep playing over and over again of the death and resurrection of Christ put on display. But if you separate the Christian life and Jesus like this, you can't see that, right? You, you can't make those t- types of declarations like Paul is doing here. Uh, but we can. And as an example of this, I, I remember years ago... Um, meeting with a non-Christian friend of mine for months or or years, just sharing the gospel with him and answering his questions. Um, One difficulty he had was just coming to understand the idea that God is love, but not feeling that and not always, uh, or just not uh, having a hard time believing in an invisible God, basically, but an invisible loving God. And so, um, But long story short, one of the things that really ended up convincing him of the legitimacy of the faith is when I would say things like, you know, like I'm not, like he actually came to faith not based off of me uh, apologetically defending the historicity of the resurrection, though we talked about that. Uh, it was a big part of our, our talk. But he came to faith seeing love, the love of God in Christians, then um, understanding that that was actually him. So a lot of my talk with him was saying, you know, if you have a hard time believing these aspects of God's character, look at me sitting right in front of you looking in your eyes. Like I have the spirit of God. and Other Christians he was meeting with as well. They have the spirit of God. If you've been loved by them, you've been act- actively loved and shown kindness and patience by the God of the universe. This very God we're talking about. Does that make sense? So it actually became this thing that, that it has, there's, there's power in it. It's not just a reality to it, but there's power in talking this way and thinking this way and viewing the church uh, this, this way as well. All right, that was kind of an aside, but just to share how this can shape the way that we think and it create more context for you and I to see the gospel at work rather than fewer. The second angle is uh, a type of suffering that constitutes true apostleship. So again, he says, just to read this quick, uh, great, he commends uh, himself in every way. By great endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. So a laundry list of suffering, right? But if you think about this list, this is, to to go back to what we're saying here, this is almost a one-to-one description of Jesus' final days, isn't it? If you think about it, Jesus, the Bible says, endured the cross from Hebrews 12, too. He had endurance. He was afflicted, obviously. He suffered the calamity of the cross. He was beaten, clearly. He was bound explicitly in the passion narratives. He was rioted against whenever the, the riots, the crowds screamed Barabbas' name to be liberated and not Jesus's. He went through sleeplessness and hunger in Gethsemane in the garden when he was praying before his arrest. And he ultimately, to look at... Um, the idea of one of those last words, labor. He ultimately worked and labored for us when he sweat blood, when he was praying, when he went to the cross, carrying the cross, which took labor and work, right? He labored for our salvation. He worked for our salvation. He sweat blood for our salvation. He sweat sweat for his salvation. He wept for our salvation. He worked. So what I'm trying to say here is Paul, and what Paul is saying, Paul is not randomly choosing words with this list, nor is God randomly asking uh, things of him or assigning him calamity to experience, but rather specific things that give shape to Christ's sufferings. So that we might be left with with this picture, among others, this is kind of what you start to see in the book. Uh, We have not framed it this way yet, but look for this as we keep reading as well. This is basically what you see in this passage and in the book. You see an apostle, a pastor, Paul, suffering for and loving the church, but the church uh, not returning that love, right? And not recognizing him for it. Have you seen that theme in the book so far? Even today? A pastor who's loving and suffering deeply for a church, but the church... Not reciprocating that love, and uh, not appreciating him for it, and, and and but they were still loved, right? And this is why it's so important to see this, in as much as it shows forth the gospel. That is our story as well with Christ, right? The good news here is is that we are the Corinthians. We're not Paul in this passage. We're not Paul in these verses. Paul is the Christ figure. We're the Corinthians, and Christ has loved and suffered for us. But we have not reciprocated that love perfectly, nor do we ever, nor do we have to. I mean, it's like saying a kid can have greater love for his or her parent than the parent can have for the kid. That never happens. How much more with God does that never happen, right? In theology, we talk about this idea of um, monergism, uh, the, the idea is uh, versus synergism. The I- synergy, of course, is two sides synergetically working together. Uh, in theology, we talk about in, in, in Christian theology, monergism actually de- defines and describes the work of God better than synergy. In that there's not this like give and take or give and pull between us and God. Like God is not saying, here's 50%, now give me 50 He doesn't work with us to our salvation, He works apart from us. And, and you, you get a, another iteration of that idea narratively in Paul, where Paul is loving and suffering for the Corinthian church that doesn't appreciate it or, or send it back. And in the same way, that's our, that's our truth, that's our, that's our story, right? We haven't perfectly reciprocated the love that God has shown for us. And that's not that we shouldn't work on that, or not that we don't have any of that, obviously that's not true, But there will always be a greater love that God will have for you than you will have for him. Rest in that. He will always love you more and want to save you more. He will always still love you even though you forget the gospel and you question the veracity of the cross, the bloodiness of it. Or we tend to move on from it to works of the flesh sometimes. Like even in that state, there's love, there's patience. There's redirection back to him. There's monergism, uh, not, not synergism. And then, last, the in thir- the third angle, is looking at s- these spiritual dualisms that express substitutionary love. This could be a whole sermon, but I, I just wanted you to see this third category of things. When he says, uh, and I'll just pull out a few here, look especially at treated as an imposter, yet true. Look at dying. And behold, we live, and look at poor yet making many rich. And I hope it's kind of old hat by now to be seeing this, um, but, but either way, notice here yet again how Paul's life just wasn't about him, and how he commended all of these things to, to the Corinthians. He commended Christ through his experiences to the Corinthians. Because again, you could look at all of these things and say, or at least most of them, and say that's actually Jesus' life. That's, he's borrowing you know, Christ-centered theology and applying it to his experience and saying, I want you to see that, not just hearing it in my preaching and reading it from my letters, but I want you to see it in my very life, the suffering and love of Jesus for you that you might be saved and kept in him. So I don't know, like, when you guys read a list like this, maybe you've done this before, I don't know what your instinct is when you read it, but the ultimate point here is not to say that you all are, or presently are, or going to be treated as an imposter. That could happen, though. Yet, you being true. But the point is to say Paul was. And then by extension, Christ was for us. Paul was dying, yet he lived, but Jesus actually died, and and then he lived. Paul became poor, yet made many rich through his gospel preaching. Jesus truly did that when he died, but then the Bible says, lavished the riches, the money of his grace, salvation, on us when he rose. That's from Ephesians chapter 1. So there's a lot more to say about that, but there's one more angle I I wanted to touch on in in the spirit and the vein of this. Uh, And that is the last three verses. So let's just read this one more time. If you have a Bible open, let's read this one more time. He says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. That last parenthetical can be read as like an insult. It's not that, he's not saying, oh, you're just kids, like, why don't you get it yet? Like, he's saying, no, you're like my spiritual children, like I'm speaking to you like a father, not a boss, not an employer, not a benevolent, you know, dictating type leader, uh, but dictating type leader, but actually I am like a spiritual father to you. So these words right here are actually some of the most endearing, pastoral, open-hearted words you'll see anywhere in Paul's writings, all of his 13 books. And there's obviously others that match this, but this is very endearing. He's He's trying to say, and keep in mind, too, he's speaking to his critics when he's saying this, his enemies, those misrepresenting him and misunderstanding him. He's saying, and to those who aren't, too, but the whole church, I love you. I really, really care about you. My heart's wide open, not cracked open but he's saying, I'm holding nothing back affectionately for you. And there is so much here for us, like as fellow Christians in the room who, you know, uh, all of us have enemies. We may not use that word all the time, but we do, even in the church or at least people who have hurt us or we've hurt them. And and I'll say, um, based off of Jesus' teachings as well as Paul's, Loving our enemies is right up there at the top of the list in terms of what it means to be a Christian. It's not the top, but it's right up there towards the top. Loving our enemies. And so this becomes this helpful litmus test and mirror for us to self-assess. Like, you know, we can read this and ask questions. When you see Paul's heart, you can ask questions like, <clears throat> especially if you're a leader, but it doesn't matter. Like, whatever your role, you can ask... Um, Simply, is this indicative of where my heart is towards other people, especially in the church that I'm at odds with? Like, is this where my heart is towards other Christians who are different from me, who are different from me politically or minor doctrinally? Like, do I pray for my enemies? Is my heart wide open to them? H- have I let them know I care about them and that their family? and that I wish for their best and pray for their spiritual health. Do you actively do that? I mean, that's just a simple thing, but it's actually a pretty big thing, right? This is, those of you who know the Bible, you know what I'm talking about, right? Loving enemies is so important because Jesus did that when he died. We were his enemies. He reconciled us, his enemies, to himself and made us sons and daughters. And so imaging that, like Paul's imaging here, having this type of posture towards critics, misrepresenters, people who sneered about him and triangulated information behind his back, who just flat out uh, spread misinformation and tried to scar him from afar. It's to those types that he has this love, you know? And if if that feels heavy or impossible to you or you're thinking, honestly, like I've never really done that well, I mean, I think the response to that, and that's, this is for me too, the response to that in one sense is good because you're, you and I are then feeling, we're feeling the cost of it, right? It's going to cost something to do that. Not that we can't work on that more, but it means we're understanding the cost. But here's, here's where we get the power to do it more, and there's better news here than just that. And that is when we see these words here, especially at the end, not just as Paul's to the Corinthians but Jesus is to us. And you've got to remember, this is one of the main points of this letter for Paul, to use his words to be a spectacle of Christ, to be like um, his life's put on center stage. We're all in the theater and we're watching it play out. He is a spectacle of Christ in his suffering for the world to see, uh, to image Jesus on that highest level. And when you do that, his letters become letters from Jesus to us, and not just a man to Christians, where then we would have to just conclude and only, then my job is to copy his affections. If, it's only, if the point is only Paul to the Corinthians, the farthest we can go is, well, I need to have that affection then towards others. That's not a bad takeaway, but that's not what the Bible's ultimately saying. Not, that's not what Paul's saying. He's commending his life as an image of Jesus and his words as well. And when we do that, our response to these words then becomes, look what Jesus wrote to me. Look what his heart is towards me. Look at how much he cares for me, his enemy. And so just to rewrite this uh, as though it was Jesus' letter to us, and it is, in the spirit of these last three verses, this is how Christ calls out to us in, in the spirit. He says... I have spoken freely to you Christians in Minneapolis. I have spoken freedom to you. Freedom from strife and fear and hell and exile. My heart's wide open. I love you to the uttermost. I'm holding nothing back. Even my own life. My heart, which arrested on the cross for you, but began beating again three days later because my love for you is stronger than death. Don't restrict your hearts toward me, but open them up also. For I have made you, who are my enemies, my friends, my adopted children, sons and daughters of the king forever and ever. And so I, I will say this in closing um, that parenthetical becomes very important. Not to see Paul insulting and bemeaning, but to see him encouraging, because then that becomes the words of Christ to us. We are children of God, are we not? Isn't that that moment in 1 John 3, 1, I think it is, where John is writing and he almost just has to step back and say, when he says, we are children of God, pause, oh, and that is what we are. We're not employees of God. We're not ultimately servants or slaves. The gospel calls to us as children. We've been adopted, we were enemies, we had enmity with him but because Jesus bled on that cross, he makes a way. And the invitation in this passage is not just love other Christians in your church, though it is, it is. But better than that, more than that, it's widen your hearts toward God. But then believe his heart will always be wider towards you. It will always be more, always be more open. Isn't it an amazing thought that God has not held anything back from himself to you? God is not stingy. He's the most generous being in the universe. He's given everything. His one and only son. How could we ever deny his love? Right? Paul is yet another iteration in this story. If if you're leaving here thinking, I want my life to be an iteration of that story, good, let it be. But don't miss the greater point. The best iteration, the ultimate iteration, is Jesus crucified and raised again. And God's heart through his son will always be more open to you than yours to him. Rest in his unfailing love. Believe, repent, and be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for calling out to us uh, weak and weary sinners who need reorientation, who need deliverance for the first time or deliverance for the thousandth. Um, God forgive us uh, our our sins, forgive us our propensity to cling to the works of the flesh, to our good deeds as opposed to grace. Um, it's a laundry list of things. We thank you for Paul's life, that it can it's put on display not just for the Corinthians but for the world. And here we are, two thousand years later, talking about his life as though it resembled Jesus's. The ongoing importance of seeing and commemorating and eating, and singing, and just knowing the gospel, the fact that God died for us. That's amazing. May it never get old. May it get sweeter and sweeter, um, especially knowing that the whole point is that you love us more than we'll love you. So the gospel's not love God. The gospel is God loved us by dying for us. Uh, pray, praise be to God. Thank you, Jesus. Help us to respond in this last song and to be encouraged this week. In Christ we pray. Amen.